Hey folks, Mendel here. We've got another guest episode for you today from Canada's National Observer, a new podcast called Race Against Climate Change. It's a six-part mini-series on the different facets of our lives and societies where we can take climate action. We're sharing episode number one, which is all about how we eat. But before we roll the episode, I have some things to say. We've been planning this episode feature for a little while, and honestly, it hits different after the events of the last few weeks. I live in the southwestern corner of a place most widely known as British Columbia. After yet another summer of extreme wildfires, we've had the wettest autumn on record, which is saying a lot for what is already a rainforest. This sequence of events, exacerbated in many places by clear-cutting, has created floods and debris flows, which in one day shattered highways and eroded rail lines, completely cutting us off from the rest of the country. Several towns were evacuated due to floods, and we are still living under a provincial state of emergency. Yet another series of intense rain events is expected over the next week. Extreme weather is plainly more and more frequent around the world. This is not the first disaster that we can point to as a symptom of climate change. It is, however, especially close to home for me, personally. As you can probably tell by the fact that this episode exists, I'm safe. But my heart goes out to the Fraser Valley, to those who are stranded, to those facing empty grocery stores, and to the people and many animals who lost so much. So, as I sit with the fragility of our critical infrastructure, our sudden, acute awareness of local food security, and our urgent need to decarbonize our lives. Before I hand you over to our guest episode, I want to share a final thought. The sooner we can find change, the more comfortable we'll be when change finds us. Okay, here goes. If you are a human who eats, this episode is for you. Whether it's droughts in countries we import food from or a heat dome destroying Canadian crops, the climate emergency is showing up on all of our plates. It's a major threat to food security and the livelihoods of thousands of farmers. Agriculture isn't just a victim of climate change. It's also a driving force. Between 8 and 12% of Canada's greenhouse gas contributions come from the farming industry. It kind of just depends on who you ask. And that's not even counting the long journey of food being trucked or flown from the farm to your table. That's just the impact of farming itself. And the crops and livestock that we raise. Heads up! I'm Shail Tejfidi. I'm Polly Lugier. From Canada's National Observer, this is Race Against Climate Change. On today's show, National Observer founder and editor-in-chief Linda Solomon-Wood sits down with the author and professor Lenore Newman on the realities of food security and climate change. We have nine years to cut our emissions in half. So how does food play into that? Food is actually the biggest piece of the puzzle by far. It's a good news, bad news story. Plus the future of meat without animals and why regenerative farming 
is Canada's next climate darling. But first, I want to tell you about a photo. It's Tuesday night, the deadly consequences of Canada's record-shattering heat. Dozens of sudden deaths in BC. The connection to climate change. It was circulating on Twitter last July, taken from an Okanagan vineyard. You can see it on our website. There are green vines climbing onto neat fences. Beyond them, you see these dusty hills dotted with trees. The sky is thick with smoke, and one hill in the distance is glowing orange from the wildfires. They're tearing across the valley. If it wasn't for patches of blue sky at the edges of the photo, you wouldn't know it was taken during the day. The person who captured this isn't a journalist like me or a firefighter. They're a migrant farm worker on the front lines of one of BC's worst wildfire seasons. That vineyard is their job site. No matter where you are in this country, this is a snapshot of the climate crisis wreaking havoc in real time on Canada's food system and its most vulnerable workers. So we're looking down a slope towards the lake through the rows. It's July. I'm in the Okanagan Valley at a working vineyard. It looks pretty similar to the Twitter photo, and I'm with Robin Bunn. Um, the skies are pretty smoky. We've been out here for just 36 <laughs> minutes, and I'm starting to feel a little like... We can't see fire, but we definitely taste smoke. Robin advocates for migrant workers, and she's been living in Kelowna for years. We get a huge influx of people coming in every year because it's, it's a beautiful. It's a beautiful place to visit. It is so heavily marketed to tourists. As we look out toward pristine grapevines at a popular Kelowna winery, it's a little eerie. It feels like there's two different cities or two different communities. Robin might as well be telling me a ghost story, at least a story of people who are, quote, invisible, who have a totally different experience of the Okanagan compared to the tourists who come here for beaches, spas, and wine tours. So the, the Okanagan, the central Okanagan Valley, is home to some of the largest orchards in Canada. This is a billion-dollar-a-year industry, and the industry absolutely does not run without migrant laborers coming from Mexico and Jamaica. And they don't experience this place the same way that other people do. Robin's a member of a group called Radical Action with Migrants in Agriculture, or RAMA for short. Farm workers generally, migrant labor in particular, are completely invisible in this narrative around how food gets to our tables. Because they are so invisible, people don't think about the issues and the challenges that they face. They hear a lot about what it's like to be a seasonal farm worker in Canada. Workers coming from Mexico or from Jamaica are hired by a single employer. They cannot change jobs. They have to live where the, the employer tells them to live, usually on farm. And there's no pathway to permanent residency when you're working through one of these programs. You don't know status for all, we say. And now that's what we're asking Justin Trudeau to do. Migrant workers come to this country to work in all kinds of jobs. But 60% wind up in agriculture. In North America, the agricultural sector is one of the most dangerous when it comes to heat deaths. And in a way, that makes a lot of sense. There's a lot more heat working in fields in California or central Mexico, but Canada 
is catching up. This is Vancouver baking yet again tonight in a record. This past summer, as BC's temperatures reached the highest ever recorded in this country, workers were telling us that they had no way of cooling down from the heat. They had no relief whatsoever. So not only are they working in these extreme heat conditions outside, they would go home after their shift and not have anything within their housing units that would help them to cool down. We realized quickly that there was nothing in any sort of housing policy or regulations that mandated that they be provided with things like fans or air conditioning in weather that was above 40 degrees. How f***ing irresponsible of employers for, for just abandoning their workers. Grim work conditions aren't exactly new in this sector. In fact, they're well documented. But throw in climate severity, and all the landscapes, including labor and politics, are increasingly unpredictable. The reason why we have so many people coming here every year to work is because there aren't enough Canadians who are willing to do this kind of work. These programs exist because there, there is a need. We also know that agriculture is one of the sectors that's most vulnerable to climate change, and not just in the Okanagan, but in, in all of the sending countries where, where people are coming from to work. We're still wrestling with, with what to do, what, what is a good solution that includes migrant workers when we're talking about climate solutions for agriculture, when we're talking about water, when we're talking about our food supply. When it comes to this race against climate change, we are still wrestling with what a good solution is. And so much of the conversations around decarbonizing and net zero focus on the numbers, understandably. But for us to eat while the climate breaks down in real time involves a lot of human cost. The extent of that isn't easily captured in the climate reports we read, but it does play out in fields all across Canada, where the immigration system meets unparalleled weather events, leaving those who feed us quite literally in the smoke. The most vulnerable workers need to be included in these conversations about how are we going to sustain agriculture as the climate changes? Because without the workers, we don't have agriculture. We won't be able to feed ourselves in the same way. So what can be done? For Rama, this includes stronger legal status for workers, inclusion into the communities they help feed, and climate safety. For others, it's transforming the entire way we farm. More on that coming up. Hi, I'm Mark Fawcett Atkinson. I'm a reporter writing about food and environment with Canada's National Observer. Over the past year, I've written on everything from the myth of plastic recycling to the future of farming and food security, issues that will only get more pressing as the climate crisis deepens. My work is possible because of subscribers. If you want more in-depth coverage of the climate emergency or want to hear more podcasts like this one, become a subscriber at nationalobserver.com slash subscribe. Enter R-A-C-C to unlock a special promo. People who own farms and people who work on them are extremely vulnerable in this climate emergency. But the way we farm on an industrial scale is also a huge source of emissions. And the latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, singled out methane as a greenhouse gas we need to act on immediately. So, Polly, why? Because methane has a lot more warming power in the short term. 
In the first 10 years methane's in the atmosphere, it traps heat at a rate 80 times that of CO2. So CO2 lasts longer, but methane does a lot more damage in this decade. And we have very little runway in the short term if we're going to cut emissions in half in nine years. How is this a farm problem, though? Agriculture is one of the main sources of methane. I mean, globally, it's right up there with fracking and orphan wells. But in Canada, about 3% of all of our GHG emissions come from cows alone. So cows are ruminants. They've got four stomachs, just like goats and sheep. And they burp methane as part of their digestive process. So it's just like built into the cow. So what's the cattle industry doing about all this? They're trying to find ways to limit the amount of methane cows produce. So imagine an antacid for cows. So uh, there are some products that essentially would be uh, a feed additive that um, they're doing trials in Canada right now. And it looks like it can reduce methane emissions, you know, around the 20 to actually up to 70 percent. That's Fawn Jackson. She's the climate lead for the Canadian Cattlemen's Association. Fawn's talking about a feed additive from a Dutch company. But other scientists here in Canada are looking at seaweed as a feed solution, which could lower, at least in part, the industry's emissions. Aside from methane, the IPCC also singled out another greenhouse gas villain in agriculture, and that's nitrous oxide. Talk about a monster. This one is 300 times more powerful than carbon dioxide. I can't. I I don't don't know how to respond to that. Yeah. I mean, who can? Because the other thing is that it comes from what we put on our soil. Here's Karen Ross. She's a farmer, and she's also the director of Farmers for Climate Solutions. The single largest growing source of emissions in our sector comes from nitrogen fertilizer use. So nitrous oxide comes from fertilizer, but don't we need that to actually grow the crops? So this is the extremely basic version of Soil 101, but plants need nitrogen to grow. So farmers use a ton of nitrogen fertilizer to boost their crops. But the flip side of this is if you use too much nitrogen fertilizer, it turns into nitrous oxide, which again, huge warming effect, way more powerful than CO2. So Farmers for Climate Solutions, FCS, looked at all the different ways farms could lower their GHG emissions, basically asking what will make the biggest cut to the sector's emissions across the board. So what would that be? Their top priority was help farmers use less nitrogen fertilizer, essentially by trying to get the earth to do the heavy lifting for them. I have no idea what that entails. It's part of this whole suite of farming practices called regenerative farming. And FCS actually came up with a short list of what would have the most impact in Canada. Okay, number one. Cover cropping. Basically growing a second crop after you harvest your cash crop so that you don't have bare earth in the off season. So how's that good? What does that actually do? Well, it keeps your soil from blowing away and degrading over the winter. And if your soil degrades, then you need to use more nitrogen fertilizer. All right, what else you got? We've got rotational grazing, basically moving your cows around. Just moving them around? Yeah, so they're not in one place for the whole summer and they don't overgraze a single area. Again, you don't want the soil to degrade. And lastly? Protecting wetlands and trees on farms. So what would all of this together do for GHG emissions? If you just look at the top two priorities, so that's cover cropping and better use of nitrogen fertilizer, these two actions alone could equal taking a million cars off the road for a year. That's like all of Ottawa. So we've got an Ottawa-sized amount of impact. There's got to be some uptake to this. 
Yeah, actually, a couple of days before the federal election was called, the Minister of Agriculture announced $200 million for just this, cover cropping, rotational grazing, and nitrogen management. $200 million doesn't seem like much cash? That's kind of the incredible thing. Like, these solutions aren't that expensive. So if you have stronger soil, you use less nitrogen fertilizer, and you're also making your farm more resilient to drought and floods. Which we know is an increasing threat for farms across Canada. And natural climate solutions also come up a lot in these conversations. Give me the rundown. Well, natural climate solutions are kind of similar to regenerative farming in that it's about working with an ecosystem to turn it into a carbon sink. So planting new trees, establishing wetlands, and ultimately better agricultural practices. What would be the climate opportunity here? The major study that came out this past summer that found that by the end of the decade, 2030, natural climate solutions could capture 78 megatons of CO2 equivalents, which is like powering every home in Canada for three whole years. Three years. Three years? Yeah. How much do farming practices play into all of that? Well, nearly half of that CO2 capture that I mentioned, the 78 megatons, comes from better agricultural practices. You know, eight growing seasons doesn't feel that far away to significantly change the emission curve in our sector. But at the same time, we're not starting from nothing. There's lots of farmer-led innovation from our fields directly that we can draw on to scale up the transition we need to see in our sector. We know that capturing carbon is a huge part of getting to net zero, but we can't do it unless we're actually just emitting less as a whole. So next, sowing the seeds of hope, we're looking at solutions to Canada's looming food insecurity. And solutions that could be at your local box store? Yeah, most people like me for radio and podcast because... <laughs> also live events with lots of old people. I'm very popular. This is Lenore Newman. In general, I'm insanely loud. She has a Canada Research Chair in Food Security and the Environment, and she's the director of the Food and Agriculture Institute at the University of the Fraser Valley. I research food and agriculture, especially looking at how agricultural technology can address climate change. She sat down with the founder and editor-in-chief of Canada's National Observer, Linda Solomon Wood. Here's part of that conversation. We have nine years to cut our emissions in half. So how does food play into that? Food is actually the biggest piece of the puzzle by far. We've really underestimated the climate impact of the food system. It's a good news, bad news story. And the bad news is um, the impact of the food system is extremely large. Just as an example, our latest estimate suggests that um, the cattle industry alone might be 6% of the global total, which is kind of unimaginable. Now, the good news is because the food system is so big, it takes up 40% of the Earth's land surface that wow. isn't glaciated. So 40%. The good news, it's so big and so inefficient that we could return even, say, 20% of that land 
to uh, to wilderness that would have a massive impact and it can actually be a climate positive and in a perfect world the food system should be sinking carbon so returning 20 percent of the land to nature you make that kind of sound possible but really is it oh it's totally possible and it's required part of the reason it's required is we're seeing this ramp up of impact of the food system because all around the world, people are moving more toward diets that look like the North American diet that are heavy in animal proteins. People uh, are wanting more meat. And what we know is we can't scale our system to feed everyone the way we eat. What we need to do is overhaul the whole food system globally. And I really do believe it could be massively smaller in climate impact, water impact, and land impact. And I think that will be necessary. That's really promising. So I'd I'd like to know, you know, the first thing I think about is what are governments doing? What is Canada doing? You know, I really see this from a theoretical standpoint as a holy trinity in that uh, first thing we have to do is massively lower the amount of animal protein we're using in the system. We know this. I mean, it's it's the biggest part of the climate footprint of the food system. And Canada is a real potential winner because we produce so much plant-based material. I mean, we're one of the world's biggest producers of crops such as oats and peas and all the things that go into plant-based proteins. So that plant-based shift should be a real win for Canada. And the Canadian government has been supporting that. And there's been a lot more talk lately about regenerative agriculture for what's left and looking at grass-fed animals rather than grain-fed. Where we do have animals in the system, we want them to be part of an ecosystem. But it means there'll be much less of them, which is why you need the first thing. You need the plant-based proteins so you can drastically downsize the animal side. You're talking about less animal-based protein for me and you and all of us. We have to eat less hamburgers. We have to eat fewer steaks. I'm not sure the public is ready for that. Are you? I think they are. But I also think one of the nice things is a lot of the impact is hidden in the system. So, for example, about 70% of global dairy production goes into milk solids. So it goes into protein powder that goes into things like cereal bars. You can replace that and no one even knows it was ever there. And so you haven't taken away people's Stilton. I've always been very fond of Stilton. But you have cut you know, four-fifths just by getting rid of the things people don't see. A good part of my work is looking at how can we really roll out vertical agriculture. The example I give is I want to be able to grow lettuce in January in Vancouver on a small parcel enough for the entire province so we don't need Californian imports because we're not going to have them soon. And huge climate footprint, poor quality actually gets to us. We can replace all of our vegetable and small fruit production with indoor. That is much more efficient. You know, that's the thing I yell from the rooftops at the governments right now. And uh, I'm very hopeful that uh, BC will be a strong leader in that. So you're out yelling from the rooftops about indoor agriculture? Yes, most definitely, because I look at it as local, local, local year-round 
And that is the key piece. It's why you need the technology. Can you paint a picture for me of what that looks like, indoor agricultural at the local level, say in a city like Vancouver or Toronto? Yes, for sure. So if we look at the crops where this really works well, leafy greens, uh, small fruits, we're at a point technologically thanks to you know, better LED lighting, you know, real advances in uh, plant breeding as well, where we could grow all the lettuce for the lower mainland on about 100 acres. And it would look like a Costco. It would literally look like a giant box sitting on hopefully a kind of poor quality piece of farmland. And all the lettuce would come from that box. So you'd walk in and you would see really a lot of plants um, stacked on top of each other in hydroponic uh, growing, you know, solution. And um, I've been in facilities like this and they're quite beautiful. You don't need pesticides. You don't need herbicides. And you're growing fast, efficiently. It uses very little water. It's stunning. There's also a neat labor piece that I like in that it's becoming increasingly dangerous to be a field worker where you're doing dangerous, low-paid, seasonal work and in, in increasingly bad conditions. As it gets hotter, you're exposed to pesticides, herbicides. In a plant factory or vertical growing facility. It's a year-round job. A lot of it is automated, and it's much safer, and you're not exposed to a bunch of dangerous chemicals. I think it's such a win. It's probably the tech that we're going to see just unfolding, and we are, and we're seeing governments like Ontario and Alberta really doubling down on this tech. You've just painted a picture, a kind of factory indoor farming it looks a lot more beautiful there are than what models I'm going to see when I go into Costco. Really be quite lovely. And what's even better is we're figuring out how to put more and more crops into such an environment. An acre of indoor farm done this well displaces about 50 acres of outdoor farming. So you free up this mass amount of land. What role does indoor farming have to play with cutting carbon emissions? It's absolutely central. Up until this summer, we had a pretty good idea of how we were going to adapt to climate change. When we experienced the heat dome, it kind of sent a shock through the people like me who study this because it shouldn't have been possible. We have berries withering and dropping off the vines. Raspberries were devastated. Blueberries were damaged pretty heavily. Then we started to get really weird stuff. Um, all the shellfish died. And we started to get reports of cherries sunburning on one side so badly they were practically cooked. And then we're watching this heat dome move across the continent and it hits the prairies. We know that there was massive loss of fodder and the cattle industry is frantically culling animals who will starve to death. We were ready to adapt to climate change to a degree. It was 20 degrees above normal. We can't produce food in a world where that's suddenly something. So what we're all hoping is it really was a one in a thousand year event, which the weather modelers are telling us under 1.5 degrees of climate change, it will be 40 degrees in Vancouver once every thousand years. And I mean, un unlikely things happen. The other option is really terrifying, is that we've passed a nonlinear point in the system at which suddenly it will be 40 degrees every couple of years. 
we need to produce food using as much technology as we can. And we have to realize the problem isn't the technology, it's policy. If your policy outcome becomes what's best for the planet, then you end up okay. If what's best for the climate were to guide Canada's policy regarding food, what would the top priorities be for Canada? Top priorities for Canada would be a rapid wartime program to roll out year-round production indoors where Canadians live. And the health benefits, the labor benefits of that would be massive. Second would be to shift as much as possible in the animal sector to regenerative, which means you're going to have a lot less animals. We don't have good cross-country agricultural policy because agriculture is a weird beast. It's split between provinces and feds. What I would love to see is instead of a minister of agriculture, more of a minister of food security, addressing the problem as part of a bigger system and really drilling down into what's the best thing to do. But I think we should set a really bold goal that will actually be a bit hard and then put some money into it. Let's make agriculture in Canada carbon neutral by, let's say, 2030 or 2035. Something that's a bit of a push. Setting goals for 2050, uh, it's too far away. It's too far out. You can coast through a lot of political cycles before you actually have to do anything. And by then, it's too late. Thank you so much, Lenore. Oh, it's my pleasure always. Great to be with you. Polly, what if I told you we could order Galapagos tortoise dumplings? You know they're actually endangered, right? Okay, I know it sounds like I'm suggesting we eat like one of those songbirds that you like drown in brandy and then fry in a horrible way and you like have to like eat it with like a napkin over your head to like hide your shame from God. Are you serious? But I'm talking about eating Galapagos tortoise without ever harming one. It all comes down to the promise of cellular agriculture, which is the idea of eating meat without raising any animals. I think you're going to cue someone who's going to tell us about that. Oh, yeah. Here's Isha Datar. So the idea is instead of raising a cow and keeping it lactating to have cow's milk, we could look at the milk directly. Okay, this is made of several proteins, fats, water and a couple other things. How can we make those proteins directly using cell culture technologies rather than a whole cow? Isha's from Edmonton. She's the executive director of New Harvest. It's kind of a cellular agriculture accelerator. So she's trying to move the whole idea of lab-cultured meat forward and what that could mean for decarbonizing agriculture. I kind of draw this parallel between factory farming and coal mining, where... It's very dirty, it's very dangerous, but it gets the job done, which is why we keep doing it. You know, the difference between coal and factory farming is we like mostly factory farm. We don't have alternatives. We don't have the solar and wind and all that kind of stuff for meat. And so I see cell-cultured foods as creating some resilience in our food system by creating agriculture that's off the land and isn't prone to the same risks. 
you know, we could grow anything from cells. We just think about nuggets and burgers and things because that's what meat looks like today. But the concept of meat goes out the window when you're growing food from cells. I tasted a steak chip. It was like as thin as a potato chip, but made of meat because cells grow in thin layers. Meat, milk, and eggs as we know it today, like those boundaries are falling away and we have this completely new tool set for producing food. If I have one call to action for people is to realize that there is a connectedness with all of the issues that we're facing today in society. We don't need to think about cellular agriculture as just a food issue. There is a just world where everything adds up. It's hard to see because our world is complex, but I really do think it's possible. And so I invite everyone to zoom way, way, way out and think about the last time we made it through climate change, which was 10,000 years ago at the end of the last ice age. We invented agriculture, which is a huge thing. You know, we domesticated animals and we domesticated plants and it got us through 10,000 years. It's that kind of shift that we need to see in the next 10 years. <laughs> Great. It's not gonna be one policy, one technology, one anything. It's about seeing our inherent interconnectedness and trying to re-envision like a completely radically new world. Envisioning a radical new world. That seems simple, right, Polly? <laughs> what are your key takeaways? Okay, number one, we need to recognize that the agriculture industry itself plays a huge role when it comes to decarbonizing. So we got to look at the ways that people are treated within the system. We've got to look at new ways of doing agriculture so it's more climate friendly. And that's really kind of going back in time to these regenerative farming practices so that we use less nitrogen, that we are producing less methane. And ultimately, we need to think about doing farming in totally different spheres. So both in the field and maybe in the lab. So what we grow, how we grow it, and the ways workers are treated, well, we're gonna need fundamental shifts to the way we do food. And that comes with pressure on the federal and provincial governments to change labor and immigration laws, invest in climate-friendly agricultural practices, and take on new ways of growing things. And like farming can seem like it takes place in this whole other detached world and we just pick up the goods at the grocery store. But realizing there's so many immediate things that farmers can be doing right now to become more climate friendly, I gotta tell you, I'm really rooting for it. Is that a pun? You could say that all these farm solutions are growing on me. Polly, let's let's not do that. Let us be optimistic, Shalia. They're unbelievable. Truly, it's knocking my stocks off. Special thanks this week to our guests. You can find more of their work in our show notes and way more climate writing at nationalobserver.com. As journalists covering the climate emergency, we know that our connection to place matters. We can't talk about our race to net zero without recognizing the colonial structures we work in. And we want to thank the people who spoke with us across Turtle Island. Canada's National Observer wouldn't exist without founder and editor-in-chief Linda Solomon-Wood. This show was produced and edited by me, Polly Legere. And me, Charayel Tajvidi. Thanks to our promotions and comms team, Suzanne Dollywall and Luke Ottenhoff. Fact check by Dana Philip Gibson and Mark Fawcett Atkinson. Artwork by Atta Ojani. Final audio mix by Tyler Gillis at Aftertouch Audio. Music this week from Blue Dot Sessions. 
Special thanks also to Jacqueline Nunez, Jay Richland, Tamara Soma, and Karen Boschema. Race Against Climate Change is a joint project from Canada's National Observer and the Canadian Centre for Journalism. You can follow us on Twitter, at Nat Observer. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and give us a rating wherever you find your podcasts. Believe me, it really helps other people find the show. <laughs> I'm cutting you off. For more episodes like this, on where we live, on the power we use, and more, find Race Against Climate Change wherever you listen to podcasts. Future Ecologies Season 4 is almost here, supported by our amazing patrons on Patreon. If you too would like to join us on Discord, where we trade memes, music, ideas for radical futures, and lots more, we just ask that you help us make the show. Join us at patreon.com slash future ecologies. And if you just want to say hi, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and iNaturalist. The handle is always future ecologies. Okay, stay safe and take care of each other. Bye for now.